This is Jen Kelly from In Black and White, here to ask a favour. If you enjoy this podcast, there's one easy way you can help us get the word out to more listeners. Simply give a rating for our podcast, and even better, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photographs to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the new In Black and White page and click on any article to begin. Someone had tried to set her alight, so she was partially burnt, and uh, she was wearing a fairly distinctive pair of yellowish pyjamas. The police realised that this case wasn't going to be solved quickly, um, so they called in funeral directors to embalm the body, which was then taken to Sydney Uni so that people could be brought in to, to see it. Lots of questions, uh, and the big one, I guess, is who is lying in that uh, grave in Preston Cemetery? I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we're back for the final episode in our four-part series with Chris Adams, who is the co-author with Helen Goltz of the Grave Tales series of books. The Pyjama Girl was the name given to an unidentified woman whose body was found dumped in 1934 near Albury on the New South Wales-Victoria border. The case mystified police and in a desperate bid to identify her, the preserved body was put on display at Sydney University where it became a virtual tourist attraction. Eventually, police declared the woman was Linda Agostini from Melbourne and her husband was tried for her murder. But Chris Adams believes the mystery is far from solved and there's no way the mystery woman could be Linda Agostini because of startling physical differences. If he's right, the identity of the woman and her killer remain a mystery almost 85 years after the crime. Here's Chris to tell us more. Welcome back, Chris, for the final in our four-part series on Grave Tales. Thank you, Jen. So the thing I love most about this story is this is a mystery that's been going for, what, 85 years now, and really it's still unresolved. Yes, I guess officially it is resolved, but when you start to look at the story more closely, I'm, I think it's fair to say it is unresolved. Mm. So who was the pyjama girl and, and why was she called that? Well, um, a body of a woman was found uh, 1st of September 1934 in a culvert under a road just outside Albury on the way to a little place called Howlong. And this body was that of a young woman. She had uh, a towel wrapped around her head. She had someone had tried to set her alight, so she was partially burnt. And uh, she was wearing a fairly distinctive pair of yellowish pyjamas. No one knew who she was. She didn't have anything else on her that gave the police any clue as to, uh, to who she was. She was discovered by a young bloke leading a bull along the side of the road, taking it from one property to another. Uh, he um, smelt petrol, and so he went uh, looking for where the smell of petrol was coming from, and it was coming from um, the, uh, the culvert area. Then he, he noticed her body then. So what clues did the police have to go on? What the police had was the sack that was over her head, the yellow pyjama coat that she was wearing, and a towel that was wrapped around her head inside the bag. Um, and they could also see dental work in the, in the young lady's mouth. 
But once they started to investigate, they found that hundreds of identical potato sacks had been sent to all parts of Victoria and New South Wales. Tracing one out of them would be impossible. They thought the, uh, the Chinese um, pyjamas would be a go because they looked expensive. But in fact, they were inexpensive and imported by the thousands. Hundreds of women had bought them. And they thought that the towel might give some hope, but it didn't. Uh, the laundry marks on it weren't used by any linen service in Victoria or New South Wales. So they really didn't have much to go on. All they had left was the dental work. And after two weeks had passed, the police realised that this case wasn't going to be solved quickly. Um, so they called in funeral directors to embalm the body, which was then taken to Sydney Uni and placed in a zinc line bath of formalin so that people could be brought in to, to see it, uh, hopefully recognise um, who it was. A local dentist uh, was given the task of preparing a dental chart so that it could be circulated to dentists in Australia and New Zealand to see if that turned anything up. Uh, disappointingly for the police, it didn't turn up anything at all. It's quite fascinating that the body was on display in that way. I wonder if that was a common thing to do back then. I'm not sure, but it gets more fascinating when, you, when we, get, we get to talk about how long that body was on display in that state. Just before we get to that, I mean, the police were still working on, on you know, in the immediacy of the discovery of the body, more or less. They even uh, displayed enlarged pictures of the body at the 1934 Albury show, which was on just a few days after the body was found. Still nothing. They even went to the lengths of tracking down all women under 40 who'd failed to vote in the federal election that was held two weekends after the discovery. That sounds like a real needle in a haystack exercise, doesn't and, it? And that's, what, that's all they had. Um, this is the best stuff they've got. So the the body is now in this tank of formula at the university and people were paraded in front of this body hoping it would, would give some clues. So it was almost like an attraction, was it? Well, people would come in to, to view the body and... Yeah, it was almost like a ritual. Are you going to be in Sydney? Oh, while you're there, you know, that sort of attitude about it. I wonder if people were actually genuinely trying to solve the mystery or if it was more just sort of a morbid curiosity. Yeah, well, there were numbers of views on that. Numbers of people said that the wounds were such, gaping wound over one eye, um, which was the, the autopsy later found was what actually killed her. Her eye was completely bashed in. I mean, so very, very hard to identify from that. And I guess also from the embalming process. I mean, if you've ever seen a, an embalmed body, often it is not, the person is no longer really recognisable. Yeah, Hugh Buggy, uh, well-known journo around Melbourne town, questioned whether anybody would recognise the woman. He said, I saw the body after it had been brought in from the road, after it had been covered in powdered ice and after it had been embalmed. That severe wound on the left side of the forehead had altered the whole character of the face as it had been in life. Nobody but one who knew the woman very well could possibly have recognised her. Exposed to intense heat had caused puffiness and made the face look fuller than it had been normally. So um, Hugh, Hugh Buggy's view on whether anybody might be able to recognise her or not. So how long was she on display in this way at Sydney Uni? Ten years. Incredible. Ten years. And w did the police ever have any success from doing that? No, <laughs> essentially. So at some point in the police investigation, they've realised that this body might be a woman called Linda Agostini, who was married to one Antonio Agostini. Can you tell us more about him and where he came from? Antonio Agostini uh, came to Australia from Italy. About 12 months after he arrived here, he met Linda Platt, who was working as a theatre usherette. She'd arrived in Australia from New Zealand 
in the same year as Antonio. The couple hit it off straight away. And they got married at the uh, registrar's office in Sydney in uh, 1930, 22nd of April. Popular couple on the Sydney scene. He was a dashing, dark-haired, charming Italian. Linda was a smart, attractive, well-liked lady. But according to Tony, it was not an easy marriage. Linda left him for long periods and often drank too much in an attempt to break the uh, the the contact she had with her Sydney friends and uh, the circles in which she drank, Tony accepted an offer to work on the Italian uh, newspaper in Melbourne in 1933 and they, they moved down to Carlton. So did moving to Melbourne break that cycle, do you think? No, it didn't. Uh, new town, just new friends to drink with. And uh, it, it was a very, very tough marriage. According to Tony, there were frequent altercations. Tragically, one of them was to be fatal. So what's happened next? Well, as I said, one of the... Uh, these events would be um, tragic. The full story of what happened to end the relationship between Antonio Agostini and his wife Linda didn't emerge until after Antonio was released from Wavell internment camp in February of 1944. Uh, when he was in Italy, he was a member of the fascist party, and so he was regarded here as somebody who should be interned in Australia while the, the, the war was on. So it's interesting he was released in 1944 before the end of the war. Yeah, it was a bit unusual. Um, apparently, uh, when he was in the internment camp, he applied for a petition for release on the grounds that he no longer posed a threat to Australia. And uh, he got a job back at a place where he'd worked when he first arrived in Australia, at Romano's Restaurant in Sydney. Uh, he got a waiter's job there. It had been 10 years at this point since the pyjama girl had been found beside the uh, road to How Long, and nine years since Linda Agostini was first connected um, with the case by New South Wales Police. Apparently, back then in 1935, a man named George Kempf informed that, that he knew Linda and had not seen her since January 1934. He maintained that the photos of the pyjama girl closely resembled Linda uh, and continued to maintain that view after he'd seen the body. Police apparently from Sydney and Melbourne both followed up the line of, that line of inquiry but eliminated Linda as, uh, as uh, the possible pyjama girl. I'm confused by that. Why would they have ruled that out if there are people who said it looked like her? I don't know. That's a question that there, there doesn't appear to be any answer to. Simply all the, the records show is that the police investigated the claims of Mr Kemp and uh, said, no, not her. So we've talked about the domestic violence between Antonio and Linda. What happened in the end? OK, so he's now out of internment camp. He's gone back to Sydney where he's back at his job at Romano's as a waiter. When he was there the first time, 10 years earlier, he got to know some of the locals, the people who visited the place fairly well. And one of them was a, a policeman who would eventually go on to become the Commissioner of Police in New South Wales, a bloke called Mackay. Now, leave, leave that there for the moment and let's keep ahead 10 years to where he's now back there. The story as it unfolded to Mackay when he was asked about it was that the couple were in bed when he, that is Antonio, was awakened with a start when an alarm clock went off and he felt something hard pressing into his head behind his left ear. He realised it was a gun that his wife was holding against his head and he quickly turned his head on the pillow and grasped his wife's hand in his. In the struggle that followed, Agostini said Linda surprised him with her strength. They rolled over on the bed and he found that she was going to let go of the revolver because her hand relaxed. The next thing he knew, there was a shot going off. His wife gave a long gasp and ceased to struggle. So after that, in his confession, as it was now, to Bill Mackay, 
Um, he told the policeman that he then drove her body over the state border into New South Wales and had dumped it in a culvert. He then poured petrol over the body and set fire to it to destroy the evidence. So this was a confession to a murder that nobody quite knew had happened. And did he specifically say where he dumped the body? No. All he said was that he went to near Albury and, and put it into a culvert and tried to set it alight with petrol. And did he ever visit the body of the pyjama girl and identify it? Yes, he did and said it wasn't her. It wasn't uh, Linda. He visited. He, he went and saw the body on one of his visits to Sydney. And did Linda's friends ever visit the body and did any of them say that it was her? All of them. Uh, lots of them visited uh, and numbers of them said it was and many people said it wasn't. So it, it was difficult. So did the authorities eventually conclude that this really was Linda? There was a coroner's inquiry in 1944 and at that inquest the uh, dentist who carried out the original post-mortem dental examination of the pyjama girl said he made a blue. <laughs> he said that he missed a filling in one of her teeth. They brought in a Macquarie Street specialist to give con- his considered opinion and he said from examination of the teeth in the body it was highly probable that the mouth of the person chartered by O'Brien, the other dentist, was Mrs L Agostini. So he was of the view that it was her. Uh, as corroborative evidence, uh, freckles on Linda's upper arm were matched with earlier photographs of her, but still everybody wasn't convinced, <laughs> and I'm not surprised. The pyjama girl had blue eyes, but Linda's eyes were brown. Uh, the pyjama girl was small-breasted, but Linda had larger breasts. Both women apparently had slightly misshapen ears, but there were no photographs of Linda Agostini to compare with. So it seems pretty incredible when there were these huge holes in the case that they've somehow decided it was Linda. It sort of suggests that authorities were just desperate to work out who this body was and to pin someone for the murder. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, you'd think that if they were to make uh, those observations about her her eyes and her breasts that, you know, um, someone would say, hang on a second, especially uh, when uh, the experts who gave these opinions couldn't present one case where this had happened previously. Now, there was also an interesting alternative story about who the pyjama girl might actually be, wasn't there? There was. All through this process, there was a fellow, a doctor by the name of Benbow, who had been acting on behalf of a woman who was looking for her daughter, uh, a lady, a lass by the name of Philomena Morgan. Um, now, Benbow turned up with a long and complicated story about how he had been approached by a woman who was saw a girl beaten in a cabin not far from Albury and then taken away in a terrible state. And Benbow was arguing to all levels uh, involved in this inquiry that this was the uh, the pyjama girl, that Philomena was the pyjama girl, not Linda Agostini. But the coroner's inquest of 1944 ruled the other way. And Antonio has confessed to murdering his wife. I guess he then must have been charged with murder. Yes, he was. Uh, He was acquitted, but he was found guilty of manslaughter instead, and he was sentenced to six years imprisonment with hard labour. He served four, and was released in 1948 and deported to Italy, uh, where he died in 1969. Now, stepping back, was Linda buried in Melbourne? Yes. Um, Her body was taken to Melbourne and she was buried in Preston Cemetery uh, in 1944, 13th of July. It was a publicly funded funeral for Linda. She had no uh, relations and not many friends in this part of the world. It was a peculiar collection of 53 onlookers at uh, her funeral, mostly there out of morbid curiosity. The term which was used by the minister who conducted the service, in fact, uh, having a shot at some of the people who were there. There were no relatives or friends there to be forebearers for her. So four journalists stepped in and acted 
um, as pallbearers for the pyjama girl. A very sad life and death, oh, yeah, really. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, and if you go to Preston Cemetery today, I mean, you'll see this little white wooden cross uh, just with Linda Agostini written across the, the centre bar. I'm sure you're not the only person who really doubts that the pyjama girl was Linda Agostini. Yeah, there's a bloke by the name of um, Richard Evans uh, who wrote a wonderful book in 2004 called The Pyjama Girl Mystery. Uh, he argues, and I tend to agree with him, um, that Agostini never denied that he killed Linda and that he uh, concealed her body, but he always denied that the pyjama girl was his wife. And there's a big difference. He would also not confirm that he'd taken the body as far as Albury. Evan says it would seem that most of Antonio Agostini's statement was true and Linda Agostini's body is lying still undiscovered somewhere um, in central Victoria. Lots of questions. Uh, and the big one, I guess, is who is lying in that uh, grave in Preston Cemetery? And there's a, there's a bit of confusion, isn't there, when Antonio tells the story about what type of gun was involved? Well, that was one of the other things that was uh, hard to understand out of this inquiry that, that determined it was Linda Agostini. I mean, here was a bloke who'd been associated with the fascist party in Italy, probably completed military service. How did he not know the difference between a revolver and a pistol? In his statement, he calls the gun that killed Linda a revolver when it was, in fact, a pistol. I mean, hard to understand. Just one of the other things that's curious about this. Mm. So is it fair to say, do you think, that the mystery of who the pyjama girl really was will never be solved? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think this has happened so long ago now. And because there was 10 years, really, between when she died and when they held the inquest that determined it was Linda Agostini, there's little chance of any of that being reversed. And, I mean, uh, there, there's no family and there's no real interest or process by society to go back and find out what happened. Mm. Well, thanks for sharing another incredible story, Chris. Thanks, Jen. And if you want to learn more, you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes. This story is from the True Crime Volume 1 edition of the Grave Tales series, and the latest book, Grave Tales Melbourne, is due out in May. You can get the books from bookshops or at gravetales.com.au. And search for Grave Tales Australia on your podcast app to listen to more great stories from the books as told by Chris and Helen. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and Al Tynan and edited by Andrea Tess Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Or if you have questions or comments, let us know by email at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to the stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each of our new episodes comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component oh, of that. I, I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts.